Hi everyone, welcome to the Better Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omar Akhtar. In this podcast, I talk with various experts to find better ways of addressing chronic disease. I hope you find this content beneficial. Today, I'm speaking with Mira Desi about how the fight against chronic disease begins in your pantry. Have you ever looked at an ingredient label and felt completely overwhelmed? Like you don't know what any of these ingredients are and which ones are good or bad for you? This discussion with Mira Desi focuses on exactly that. When it comes to treating chronic disease in a holistic manner, diet plays a central role. But diet and everything around it can be so confusing nowadays. Being able to simplify it in a way that is understandable and applicable is crucial, and Mira helps us do that. After listening, you'll have your pantry positioned for success to live the healthiest life possible. Now, let's head over to the episode. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm extremely excited to be talking to Mira Desi, who is the ingredient guru, a holistic nutrition professional, author, and popular public speaker. She knows that it's not just about what you eat, but what's in what you eat. Mira is a board-certified holistic health practitioner who has been working with clients for over 16 years, helping clients with chronic health issues, finding nourishing solutions for wellness. Mira is a member of the National Association of Nutrition Professionals, the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, the American Association of Drugless Practitioners. Additionally, she is on the board of directors for the American Holistic Health Association and is a member of the Professional Advisory Board for the Turner Syndrome Society. She can be found online at theingredientguru.com. So Mira, thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. I'm looking forward to it as well. Great. So, you know, we align so well because we are using a holistic approach in treating chronic disease and we are approaching our patients and clients that way. Where I want to start with is that we know nutrition plays such a big role in the development and, and progression of chronic disease. So, but that's not necessarily that widely known out there. And it's not that everyone is a, going by those principles. So I want to just talk to those people right now who may not feel that nutrition plays such a key role. What have you seen in your experience and all the years that you've been working with chronic disease at the central role that nutrition plays in its development and progression? That's such a great question. You know, one of the things I think is really challenging for so many people is we grow up with a couple of myths around our food that really contribute to potentially lifelong habits that don't sustain us well when it comes to chronic illness. One is that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. It doesn't really matter. Like just, you know, and it mostly tends to focus on weight, eat less, exercise more, and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. The other is we don't grow up learning how our bodies work. So we don't understand the need for nutrient dense foods that are, you know, have amino acids, that have phytonutrients, that have vitamins and minerals, and all the things that are the building blocks of our body. And unfortunately, what's really more profitable for food producers is all the cheap energy dense food. So energy dense is all those things that have a lot of calories and not a lot of nutrition. Nutrient dense is things that maybe don't have as many calories, but pack a nutritional punch. So it's, it's more profitable if we would just eat snacks and cookies, right. <laughs> but, uh, 
as we, as many people begin to discover that their health is impacted, because unfortunately, it's it's a many chronic health issues are a condition of years. It's not like you eat a Twinkie one day and you wake up the next day with diabetes or you eat nightshades and then the next morning you wake up and you have arthritis or whatever. It takes a very long time for the body to respond to this and then learning how to redo it becomes part of the challenge. Mm -hmm. That's so important. And, you know, for me, when I see patients, I'm obviously I'm using a holistic approach, which involves diet and lifestyle. But it's one thing to just recommend a, a dietary pattern for them, like, you know, try to, to eat a paleo diet or a, an outline of a specific carbohydrate diet or something like that. It's a whole other thing to be able to equip them with the principles of healthy eating. And that starts from what they buy. So that starts from the grocery store. And sometimes it's so daunting walking into a grocery store looking for things that are healthy, but at the same time taste good. And you can use, like you mentioned, the nutrient-dense foods. And so are you able to guide us through how someone should navigate that um, experience of going in the grocery store, finding what they, or, or being educating themselves to be able to pick out the best things for themselves and their families? Absolutely. That actually is the foundation of the work that I do with people. I, I think one of the good places to start is to develop the habit of truly learning how to read a food label. You know, most people, when they, if they look at the food label and the food producers work really hard to try to convince you not to do that. But if people do look at the food label, typically they're just looking at the top, the, the nutrition facts section, which is where all the numbers are. And while there's some important information there, manufacturers can manipulate quite a bit. And so we're not really getting the whole story when we look there. The more important part is to look at the ingredient panel down below, because that's the place where we wind up finding out, are there excessive sugars in there? Are there artificial ingredients? Are there things that perhaps are not a good fit for gut health and all of that. So learning to build that habit of reading the label. And then I also encourage people to learn what are the things that are most important for your particular health situation. For example, if we have adults or children who have attention-related disorders, we want to make sure we're not getting artificial colors and those kinds of things are very overwhelming, stimulating for the brain. We know that when we have people who have blood sugar issues, like I mentioned, food producers, in order to avoid putting sugar as the first ingredient, will typically put three, four, five, I've seen as many as seven different kinds of sweetener in something in order to hide how much sugar is in there. And then also learning what are the needs for your particular health condition. And that's where working with someone such as yourself who incorporates diet, people can begin to learn the, the foods that are most supportive for their bio-individual health needs. Absolutely. And I want to focus a little bit about that ingredient label because I know that's the area you specialize in as well as the area that's the most confusing for people. You know, and I, I can relate to that even though I'm a physician, but when it comes to reading that ingredient label, it's 
you know, it's just completely uh, something that you don't know what to make of it, really. And so I want to spend some time there and ask you so that people understand what are the main things to, to look at. You mentioned the ingredients down below, but how do we make sense of, for example, you know, for when I buy um, snacks for my children, you know, let's say like a, a granola bar is something that they like to eat. Now I'm trying to find the healthiest granola bar in that section. So I'm looking through the labels. Right. And what I basically have to, com- what I try to compare is let's say added sugar. So the one that has the least amount of added sugar in that label where it says 12 grams of added sugar or nine grams or something. The ones that are really high might have like 25 grams. You know, what are the key things when we're trying to look at two products and differentiating them and trying to get the healthiest product? Because, you know, we can't really avoid and, and, you know, avoid these foods altogether, at least when you have kids, I feel. Um, There are, you know, I, I think that you can do better, right? But it's also hard to just avoid it entirely. My kids also eat that those uh, fruit pouches, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the apple, the strawberry. And so finding the ones that, again, have the least amount of added sugar and the least amount of ingredients um, is what I try to do. So um, that would be great if we could talk about that. Absolutely. And I do agree, the fewer ingredients, the better. However, that comes with the proviso that we also truly understand what those ingredients are, because you can have something that has very few ingredients, but it turns out some of them are maybe not so good for us. I do actually have something that I call my seven simple rules for healthy shopping. And with these, I encourage people to learn what the seven rules are pick one, work on that. Once you've mastered that, move on to the next one. Because I also know nobody wants to spend five hours at the grocery store. Sure. We, we, we do tend to shop on autopilot. Food producers know that, grocery stores know that. That's why they do a reset every now and then, because then you spend more time in the grocery store. And the more time you spend there, the more money you tend to spend. Uh, but if you learn the seven simple rules and you begin to learn how to make those changes and how to identify those things that fit those rules for your family, the cleaner you're able to make your pantry, which obviously means then a cleaner diet for the family as well. Mm-hmm. So, so my first rule is that you need to understand what you're eating. Like I, I truly feel that if a word is confusing or we're not really sure of what it is, we should not buy it until we've had a chance to look it up and I understand exactly what it is. Because there are, there can be a lot of confusing words on the food label, and you shouldn't need to be a, a scientist in order to feed your family. Yeah, that's just very, very straightforward, very basic. Um, the the other thing that I am a huge fan of is getting rid of the numbers. And my my joke is, there's no such thing as a kale twenty four. There's no apple number six. Like those things don't exist. So the numbers tend to be things like artificial colors or polysorbate 80, you know, like those kinds of ingredients. And, and we're actually very fortunate because here in America, we do have to use words and numbers in other countries. For example, over in Europe or in Australia, they use something called e-numbers where everything is an e with three numbers after. Mm-hmm. Then you have to learn which ones are the good ones and which ones are the not so good ones. 
So for us, it's very simple. If it has a number, please put it back on the shelf. Um, the, the next thing that I encourage people to do is think about how long those words are. If it's more than four syllables, you really have to think about it. Mm. Now, there are words that are longer than four syllables that are good, like macadamia, which is five. But we, you know, if it's longer than that and we don't know what it is, like it starts getting into that gray area where we need to investigate it first before we add it to our diet. Yeah, if it sounds very um, artificial in, you know, like exactly benzoate or something like that. Right. And, and that actually ties into another one, which is that if it ends in A-T-E, you have to think about it. Now, some things do end in A-T-E, like pomegranates. We love them. You know, they're delicious. But benzoates, sorbates, nitrates, gallates, all those things are not a healthy choice in the diet. So thinking about that as well. And, and then another rule is, is it unpronounceable? You know, we... Now, again... We have to think about it. When quinoa first came on the market, a lot of people, they were like, quinoa, quinoa, what, what? You know, what is that? But what, once we learned what it was, then it becomes easy to know that, you know, yes, it's a high protein grain and it could be a beneficial addition to the diet. But again, it's really about taking the time to learn what's in your food because we have given far too much authority to food producers and allowed them to co-opt our food. And we should no longer shop on autopilot. We really have to be mindful of, of what's in our food. Um, the, the next, the next rule that I have, this is number six is, is it enriched? And this is really important because when we enrich food, what that means is we take a lot of nutrients out of it so that it can be highly processed. And then typically we add a couple of them back because if mm -hmm. we didn't have them, it would be nutritionally deficient. The biggest example of this is enriched grains used for bread, mm -hmm. um, which depending on your dietary theory, you know, maybe you should either not be eating bread or eating something differently, but we should never be eating enriched breads because or flowers. They, or flowers. Yes, absolutely. Um, they've, they've taken out approximately 20 to 22 nutrients and they've added back a few B vitamins, maybe some iron, maybe some calcium. And, and the things that they're adding back are chemical analogs. They're not a natural version of those particular nutrients as well. So, mm. so, that, so, yeah, so they call them enriched, but they're enriching it with chemicals as opposed to and it's still nutritionally deficient. Like that's the important part. People think, oh, it's enriched. It's better. No, there's still a lot of things mm -hmm. missing from that. Yeah, it's and a clever then, play of words. It is. It absolutely is. And then the, the last grocery shopping rule that I have for people is to, if something is all capital letters, to avoid it. B-H-A, B-H-T, E-D-T-Q, T-B, mm. you know, T-B-H-Q, E-D-T-A. Those are all simply uh, abbreviations for long chemical names. And so we, we don't want those in our diet. Yes, such important principles. And thank you for laying those out. Um, I think that to take a little step back and from a psychological perspective, sometimes it can be difficult when you have a limited time in the grocery store and you have this mentality or this, uh, this, this thought can cross your mind unless you're very conscious of it, 
that you have to get these things in a limited time. And you know that, let's say, eating a whatever you're eating just once or a few times does not lead to, like we said at the start, chronic disease development right away. So there is this tendency to also push it off, you know, and that people can get caught in that, which is like, you know, oh, it's, I don't have enough time and ability to look at that label right now, but this one time of getting this thing is not going to hurt me that much, you know? So just playing that devil's advocate there where that type of thought is sometimes you have to battle that, you know, and that could be looking like your kids want something and you, you know, instead of resisting it and saying that this has die number so-and-so in it, you know, you can give in and allow that to happen once. And so there is that psychological component, I think, as well, where we know that sometimes when you eat these things, you don't feel worse right away and it can take time to develop the ill effects of that. So um, I thought I'd just point that out from an interesting psychological perspective. And I think one of the really important things to remember is food producers work really, really hard to make food that is hyper palatable. So things that we become addicted to, and they also work really hard to develop brand loyalty. The lifetime value of a customer who will consume a particular company's product line is astronomical. The other thing is that so many of these things can cause low level issues. I will share, for example, that you know my particular area of expertise when, when it comes to nutrition and supporting people is gut health. And I am always astonished at how quickly someone starts to feel better when they really focus on cleaning up things that impact the gut and they realize perhaps they had, you know, some sort of bowel health issue, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, gas, whatever, and they give up certain ingredients and all of a sudden within 30 days, they're feeling so much better or people who it turns out are sensitive to certain other ingredients and they discover low-level rashes or a lot of sinus stuff, a lot of low-level sub-allergy kind of things that happen. It's, it's like that frog-in-the-water experiment that they talk about in, in, I think it's middle school or high school. You know, you put a frog in a pot of water and you slowly turn up the heat. And the little frog, he's swimming around and he's happy and you turn up the heat a little more and he's still swimming around and you do it so gradually until all of a sudden... A frog is very hot, but it can't get out and then it dies. Well, I, I would like to point out that all of these chemical impacts add up over time and it's so low level and it's so continuous. And the other thing to keep in mind is it's not just one food. It's across the spectrum of what we consume. We, we wind up getting far more than we think we are. Yeah. And that makes it so much more challenging. So. That's why I encourage people to start with one rule at a time. Start with one, yeah. master that, find healthy alternatives. You know, I'll, I'll share that at one point when I was beginning this journey, I, I remember having a admittedly very embarrassing encounter with 
one of my daughters at the grocery store and she's screaming that she wants her juice. And I'm screaming back at her that we're not buying it because it has high fructose corn syrup Mm -hmm. in it. And it's not really juice, it's juice cocktail. And I've learned about all this, you know, and there are probably people walking by the aisle. I'm just not going to go down that aisle right now. That's That's a conversation where you have to figure out what it is without a family member present, bring home options and say, Hey guys, let's try these new things. Like I found a new juice or a new pickle or a new whatever and, and give them options and get them to buy in with you and change your habits. And this is, this is not meant to be a throw out everything in your pantry, go shopping tomorrow. And then everything's magically fabulous. It, it really does take time and commitment. Mm-hmm. For families that have children, you're also helping those children build healthy lifetime habits that will hopefully be passed on to future generations. Yeah, it really is a process. And, you know, it's a process of learning and then implementing. And, and the, the less you do at, at one time, the better so that you don't get overwhelmed and leave it all together. So, so I wanted to ask you that if you look into a pantry and you were to point out the main issues that you find with a pantry, what are those things that you would look at in a pantry and go like, this really shouldn't be here and replace it with this? Are there certain things that are pop out right away to you? So the three ingredients, if you will, that I really encourage people to avoid artificial anything you know, artificial colors, artificial flavors, artificial food. If you see the word artificial, whether it, and some products will actually put it on the front, you know, made with natural and artificial flavors. Mm -hmm. Don't buy that. Those artificial ingredients are pure chemical. They are not good for us. They can be very toxic to our system. So artificial anything is out. I do encourage people to educate themselves about sugar and trying to reduce the amount of sugar that's in what they consume, you know, and, and one of the challenges that we face here is that we are biologically programmed to seek out sugar. Mm-hmm. And a long time ago, it was a, a survival mechanism and an energy mechanism. And so that was great. Food producers know that unfortunately. And so now they've started putting sugars into foods that are savory. You'll find it in condiments and crackers and things that are not really perceived as sweet. So when that happens, all of a sudden, how much more sugar do you need for something to be seen as sweet? What does it take to make dessert? Uh, the good news is we can, we can reset our palate. So learning to reduce the amount of sugars in what you're eating. And then the third that I really struggle with Uh, I encourage people to avoid a lot is monosodium glutamate. It is very overwhelming to the brain and contributes to a whole bunch of different health issues. And one of the biggest challenges for that is it does kind of hide under a number of different names. So I encourage people to learn the words autolyzed, hydrolyzed, and then of course, you know, anything glutamate, Mm -hmm. which falls under that ATE rule. Right. Uh, but those, those would be the three biggies that I would encourage people to pick one of those, start there and then begin to clean up their pantry. It's great advice. Yeah. Now, um, there are so many people and we're included in that who are busy and lead busy lifestyles and they're professionals and 
you know, even though they may have a strong desire to lead healthy lifestyles, they may just not have the time or the ability to prepare their meals and be very mindful of their approach. And so I know that, for example, if I have a very hectic morning and I forget to take lunch with me, then that just sets up for not the best day um, in, term, in terms of eating. And you know, if you, if you mix that with a, a caseload of, of patients, then it just makes it so much harder. So there is that element of preparedness, but what are your top tips for working professionals in their overall preparedness so that they don't run into this food emergency where instead of their lunch, which they forgot, they're now running down to the store to, to grab some, some quick snack to eat. I love the idea of really learning how to build habits. So for example, learning to sit down on a Sunday afternoon and say, okay, these are going to be the lunches I'm going to make this week. And this, these are my containers, or this is how I'm going to do it. I'm also a really big fan of, of leftovers for lunch. Mm -hmm. So if they're packaged properly, that's an easy way to do it. Uh, believe it or not, in our house, we actually have a sticker that goes on the front door and it does say lunch on it so that my husband or I, when we're leaving, like it's at eye level mm, so that okay. we don't forget. And, and then having a few healthy snacks on hand at the office, nuts and seeds, maybe a little bit of fruit. You know, I find it fascinating that so many office settings, people have bowls of candy sitting out. And so everybody sort of wanders by and helps themselves just a little piece of candy, you know, and I no longer work in that kind of a setting, but now knowing what I know, I would be the one that would have a bowl of fruit. <laughs> I would have, you know, maybe a couple of apples, a pear, some little mini clementines, something like that. And that way you've got at least a little something so that perhaps you can, you can get something into you so you're not quite so hungry when you decide what you're going to do. And then the third strategy that I use when I do work with office professionals is to remember that if you have forgotten your lunch, running to the fast food place down the street, it's an option, not a healthy one, but it is an option. The other option is where's the closest grocery store? Mm. You can go to the grocery store and purchase a number of prepared foods that are better options than what you're going to get at the, at the fast food places. Yeah. All important principles. And I think that, you know, they, they applied to me as much as to anyone else. To, so yeah, thank you for that. Um, I want to ask you the last question that for, about children and how big of a challenge it is raising them in this world, in this environment that we have and our, our food system that we just talked about, when trying to get them to eat healthy and to opt for their fruits and vegetables and to not replace their whole meals with just snacks because kids love to snack and they have such high energy needs. And so what are your top principles when it comes to helping our kids eat healthier? as well. I love involving kids in the kitchen. And I feel like even starting at a young age, as young as say three, they can, you can give them a measuring cup 
of something and they can dump it into the bowl or whatever. And it seems to be very true for a lot of kids. If they have a hand in making it, they're more willing to at least try it mm-hmm. or it, or they claim ownership of it. And then people say it's good. And that begins to help them hopefully build some healthy habits. I also really feel that it's important to, you know, unlike what I did with my daughter, don't do a pull the rug out from under them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important to give them options and to ask for their feedback and their buy-in If they ask, why are we doing it? Like, we love this snack. Why are you changing that snack? You say, well, I'm looking for some healthier options that maybe don't have some of these harmful ingredients or trying to help nourish your body so you can grow up to be strong. And some kids are going to respond positively to that and some aren't. Each family has to figure out what what works for their own family situation. But if you're at least asking for their buy-in, they, once they make a choice, they're a little more likely to go along with it. And then, you know, I also feel that it's important to do things a little bit at a time. It's really challenging to go, we're just going to make like this huge change and it's all going to be done. And even for the grownups in the family, that can be a a big shift. You know, food is such a a matter of comfort for us on so many levels. We, we have certain foods that we like when we are sad, we have certain foods that we like when we're happy or celebrating, or if we're stressed or all these different things. And if we're fortunate, we get to eat at least three times a day. Food is a very big part of our environment. And without even realizing it mentally, we have a a lot of emotional connections to Mm -hmm. our food. And so when we want to make a change, we have to do so mindfully. Yeah, I think it's it's funny because, um, you know, when I'll have my almost five-year-old at the grocery store and we go through the, the goldfish section and he's like, can, you know, can I have that? Then, you know, he's also too young for me to explain that, that this contains unhealthy stuff. What does that even mean? And mm-hmm. so I usually end up just mumbling something underneath my breath and just just walking on. Because, you know, it's very hard to explain to them at that young age why you're making these decisions. So, um, you know, older kids, you can talk to them about ingredients and what the, you know, health and things like that. But it's, it's always a challenge with younger kids. So, and, and with the younger ones, I will say one thing that can be very fun. So at almost five, they're old enough to well, at least see the process, if not participate in the process, making goldfish alternatives. So you can make a cheesy flavored, cute cracker at home. And, you know, you could start with squares so you don't have to go buy a whole bunch of little cookie cutters because that'd be hard cutting out all those little fish. But to make something that tastes so good that it's like, this is this is our fun cracker kind of thing. Or do you want here, do you want to taste these ingredients? I I have spent time cooking with a lot of kids, my own and others. And one of the things I love to do with them when they're, when they're in that elementary school range is to get them to taste all of the ingredients. Oh, so we're going to make crackers. Do you want these seeds on it? Or do you want these chopped nuts on it? Or do you want these spices on it? And, but I want them to taste everything. And some things they're like, "Mm." but then other things are like, Oh, I like that. Like, let's put that on it. And 
just having that so yeah. that when it's you more, see them more at the store, yeah, again, when you see them at the grocery store and they're like, oh, but those are so cute. And I saw that on my Saturday TV show. It's like, yeah, they are cute, aren't they? And remember, we have these great crackers at home. Like, do you want to make a batch when we get home kind of thing just mm-hmm. to help them? Yeah. Yeah, this is such an important conversation and um, such great advice from you. So I appreciate that. We know that right now, like, for example, in Florida, there's a big hurricane and there are a lot of people that one of the ways in which they get affected is through food shortages and uh, supply chain issues and things like that. And so there you talk a lot about being prepared for any situation and that could be as a busy professional but also in the in the setting of a natural disaster and so i know you also um have this um have a course correct on mm-hmm. food preparedness or pantry preparedness so I, if you I want to mention it. to people uh, that would be great yeah so i one of the things that's so challenging and of course our hearts go out to everybody in florida now south carolina as well as puerto rico canada like there's been a lot going on uh in in that area of the country along that band of of hurricanes um you know for anybody who has a chronic health issue it's really important to make sure that you have the food that you need on hand because you can't rely on the grocery store to have enough. When, when there's an emergency, people go and they clean out the grocery store, whether it's prudent choices or not, and that doesn't leave the nourishing foods behind. So if, if you have a chronic health issue, you want to make sure you've got what you need on hand. For people who perhaps don't have a chronic health issue, you still want to be able to have a preparedness pantry because you need to make sure you have enough water. You need to make sure that you have enough nourishing foods to support yourself so that you and your family can navigate whatever is going, power outages, clean up all those kinds of things. So I do, I do have a program. It's called the preparedness pantry masterclass and it's a easily consumable class. It's I've got, three uh, long form lessons, tons of handouts, six guest speakers, teaching people a number of the different things that they need to know so that they can build a preparedness pantry and not be so reliant on some of those supply chain issues. Interestingly enough, I did actually talk with someone the other day who is, you know, is part of the preparedness pantry community And she was saying that because of her preparedness pantry, she's actually been able to stretch some of her grocery purchases because in her area, certain things have gone up because of supply chain issues, but she had enough on hand that it wasn't, it didn't affect her as well either. But yeah, so there is a program. I can send you a link if your people are interested in learning more and, uh, and also learning about emergency. There is one module in the class about emergency preparedness as well you know, aside from the whole pantry thing, but just like what to do in an emergency. Great. I will include those links in the show notes and it's such an important resource for people. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time, Mira, to speak with me. And this was such a good conversation and such an important topic. So I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate your inviting me on and allowing me to share with your community. Thank you and take care. 
If you liked this episode, please share with your friends and family, and please remember to subscribe so we can share this message with as many people as possible.